When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. The Guardian. As Parliament breaks up for the summer recess, Boris Johnson pushes major plans into the autumn. I'm Jessica Algott, Chief Political Correspondent for The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly. Hi folks, like so many hundreds of thousands of other people across the country, I've been pinged, I've been asked to self-isolate. With the Chancellor, the Health Secretary and the Prime Minister self-isolating, it has proved once again impossible to reach a final agreement over a crumbling social care system. Social care was only one of Boris Johnson's big themes that he saw as central to his political project. Another one was levelling up. It's an outrage that a man in Glasgow or Blackpool has an average of 10 years less on this planet than someone growing up in Hart in Hampshire or in Rutland. But following last week's much-anticipated speech, many Tories are still left scratching their heads as to what to tell their constituents the programme even means. And where are we on the roadmap to net zero by 2050? As the UK prepares to host the high-stakes COP26, will the grand rhetoric translate into action? Plus, the latest, and for a while the last, news out of Westminster. That's all in this week's Politics Weekly. To kick us off, I spoke to The Guardian columnist Polly Toynbee. And you might also be able to hear some enthusiastic children in the garden next to me as they start their summer holidays with a new trampoline. Polly, it's lovely to have you on. First of all... um, The Chancellor, the Health Secretary and the PM are all currently in quarantine. Um, That's not the most fantastic start to Freedom Day, is it? It's a very comical start to Freedom Day, particularly as they handled it so badly. I mean, the the sense of hypocrisy that they tried to get out of it by pretending they were in a pilot randomly, randomly selected for a pilot scheme, uh, I think had people really indignant. I think this might be a sort of turning point where the one rule for us and another rule for you uh, really hits home with people. It was an extraordinary kind of mix-up, wasn't it, where where Downing Street actually put out a statement saying they'll be taking part in the pilot. And then Boris Johnson has to say later that he only briefly considered it, but he clearly only briefly considered it enough to put a statement out telling the world about it. Absolutely. I mean, as with the with the Hancock hesitation for a crucial day, saying the matter is closed. I mean, really a tin ear about what the public care about. It's interesting what the public does and doesn't care about. They don't seem to care very much about sort of corruption and chumocracy in Westminster, but they really care about being told to do things that are big sacrifices for their personal lives and then seeing politicians not doing it. 
And one of the other big revelations this week that we've seen is that Boris Johnson has said that he is in fact going to introduce these COVID passports for nightclubs. He introduced them only 24 hours after opening them. And he doesn't seem to be ruling them out for other kinds of venues. He says, you know, crowded places indoors where it's people you don't meet very often. That sounds actually quite a lot like Conservative Party conference, maybe. And we could see a pretty big rebellion over them within his own party. Um, Why do you think he's done it? Extraordinary talent, isn't it, for annoying absolutely everybody at once. It's not cakeism. It's no cake and no eating it. Uh, So people are either angry because there are going to be passports or I suspect most Tory voters very angry at opening up these these clubbing events and these nightclubs. You know, the young are always unpopular. And if they're having fun, especially unpopular. So all of those pictures of people, you know, leaping onto the dance floor will come back to haunt him. If this really turns out to be a big spreading event, I think he's in real trouble because there'll be very few supporters of it. So the fact that there are, you know, maverick right-wing Tory MPs saying this is a disgraceful infringement of our liberty to have to have passports, uh, I think that's minor compared to what most of the population will feel. How do you think it will go down with the public if Boris Johnson does end up rolling back restrictions, even minor ones, even if it means reintroducing mask wearing or even if it means some sort of stay at home guidance, Um, even though the public does actually seem to be quite cautious, more cautious than the politicians. We did see a huge plummet in support for the Tories during that chaotic period of the winter and autumn when they were sort of chopping and changing what the restrictions were. Um, do you think it would be you know, really damaging for them if they had to reimpose restrictions or would people understand it? I think they won't forgive it this time because they'll say, what on earth were you doing opening up in a rising crescendo of cases? It's not as if there was a a window of opportunity. It was an arbitrary date that you chose because it was the end of Parliament and you wanted your Freedom Day on your, you know, after uh, his his anniversary of two years in power. These were ridiculous reasons. Uh, I think the amount of chaos this time has made businesses and everybody else very angry. What people want is rules. They want to know what should we do? What should we not do? Every time a minister appears, uh, uh, they can't really say, is it compulsory? Is it not? Do we obey a ping? Do we not? Is it advisory? Only a certain kind of ping. It's not what people want to hear. So I think this time there will be much less forgiveness. In the beginning, a government was feeling its way in the middle of a pandemic. How do you, Nobody's ever had to face this before. Any government would have been in trouble. People gave uh, a, a lot of leeway to Boris Johnson, but no longer. I want to talk a little bit about Labour's position. Keir Starmer came out with some of his strongest condemnation yet about this Freedom Day, um, saying it was reckless, saying that Labour wouldn't have gone ahead with it, that they oppose it. We don't hear a lot from Labour about what what the alternative would be. And it is, is, you know, they they say they would keep masks and that they would stress ventilation, but they don't say they'd go much further than that. And it is a tricky balance to strike, isn't it? Once you say most of the population, most of the vulnerable is vaccinated, you know, how much further can you go? What, what, you know, at what point do you say we have to now live with this virus? And, and Labour's got a tightrope to walk, hasn't it? I think it's very difficult indeed. But certainly this amount of chaos, uh, I think, is an, an opportunity for Labour to say, just 
write the rules. Get the scientists to tell us what the rules should be. All right, the rules might be relaxed, but let them at least be firm wherever you set the line. That's what a government is there to do for them. And so I think Labour should make the most of that. Um, Certainly, it's difficult over the question of passports, um, because Keir Starmer himself came out saying it doesn't feel like the British way to have COVID passports, in other words, to more or less force people to have to get jabbed. But the times have changed now, and I think think he should come out and say he'll back them. And I think it would be embarrassing for Boris Johnson if he only got it through Parliament with Labour's backing against, say, 40 of his own MPs. Labour have already opposed, haven't they, mandatory jabs for for care home workers. And I think there is definitely a debate going on within the shadow cabinet about, you know, before it was opposed because, for example, pregnant women couldn't have the jab. Now pregnant women can have the jab. And it was also opposed because it seemed like they might be redundant because once everyone's vaccinated, they weren't needed. Now it seems like actually that's not the case that, they're, they're, you know, they, they aren't redundant. They could be useful. Um it's a yeah I mean it's a tricky one because you it's it's tempting isn't it to inflict defeat on the government which you might you know almost certainly be able to do if you oppose them it might be more subtle to support them against their own rebels um it would be I I think more shocking perhaps than the usual old opposition to take a, a wise judgment on this on the question of jabbing care home, making it compulsory, I went and visited a care home in Scarborough and they said the handful they'd got who weren't uh, accepting vaccination, if they had to remove them, the care home would probably have to close, even though it's only a few because they're already so understaffed, can't get people to come and work there. So it's a matter of practicality as much as ideology about vaccination. Let's look a little bit more about what's happening within the Labour Party. Um, last night, Labour's ruling body voted voted to oust for what they're described as far left factions, groups that, you know, have, have had, you know, a bit of a torrid history in terms of the anti-Semitism allegations that, you know, have obviously dogged the party for, for several years. Um, factions that are supportive of the former leader, Jeremy Corbyn, and anyone found to be a member of these groups will be automatically expelled from the Labour Party. What do you think about this sort of iron fist approach, I guess? I think it's necessary. A, you know, quite a wave of people joined Labour for Jeremy Corbyn, who had never really been Labour people, and who do belong to all these uh, little groupuscules that are opposed to Labour. They're trying to take it over, um, and in, in the end, they have to be rooted out. They can make an awful lot of trouble for local parties that are driven mad by it. I think it's Labour's in a really difficult place at the moment because it's having to spend a fortune on these legal cases about throwing people out over anti-Semitism. It hasn't got much money. It's having to lose a lot of staff due to its lack of funds. Um, and I think, you know, you've just got to be tough about the finances, ready to fight an election that could be as soon as next year. Uh, I think they've got to save everything they possibly can for a proper election fight. I mean, I suppose there is an argument, isn't there, to say that you should actually treat people as individuals. Um, you know, if, if people have individually broken the rules on anti-Semitism, um, I, I know there's also been, you know, some concerns about conspiracy theories about Syria that's been spread. But 
do you think it's right to do the do it on a kind of prescribing the entire group? Should it not be done on, a, on the you know the actions of individuals in these groups on a case by case basis? No, I think what was learned from militant uh, back when Neil Kinnock took a, a firm stand is that you actually have to say if you belong to this group, this means you're subscribe subscribing to that kind of stuff which just doesn't sit with the Social Democratic Party, uh, and you know if it is anti-Semitism, it is conspiracy theories. If it is determined to capture the Labour Party as its main aim, that's just not democratic. And I think, um, you ha- you know, you can't have people in those groups. You belong to the Labour Party, not to factions. And there are obviously people who belong to left-wing groups in the Labour Party who are supporters of Jeremy Corbyn um, and who don't subscribe to these kinds of conspiracy theories and don't like anti-Semitism, but they also don't really like the leadership of Keir Starmer. And, you know, people who are members of Momentum or members of the LRC, which is chaired by um, John McDonnell. And they they genuinely fear and Momentum put out a statement as such that they're that they're next, that that there is a, you know, sort of a view that the, the whole of the left must be purged from the party. Do you think they're right to worry about that? Not really, because that would be such a huge effort. Um, and I don't think it's right either. You know, look look at how split the Tory party is in many different ways. I think, um, uh, you know, I, I really don't think you go, you know, throw out John McDonnell. I mean, no, of course not. The Corbyn case was very particular because he would not apologise for what he, he what he had done. And uh, that's a, a, a particular you know, one-off. And um, I don't think you can take on the whole of the left because the party has always been the left and the right. It's whole history. You know, Harold Wilson had to navigate this. Uh, any leader of the Labour Party, any leader of the Tory party has to navigate the fact that we, because we don't have a proportional representation system, have these big portmanteau parties that sweep up from right to left across the spectrum and it's a nightmare and it shouldn't be that way but while we have the first past the post system that's how people have to cohabit and finally polly summer recess is is almost upon us do you think we'll get a break from political news or is it going to be a busy summer it often is even unexpectedly isn't it it is. It doesn't all happen at Westminster. It's going to rumble on all through the summer. There is so much. Very often, this is the week when they sneak out all kinds of unwelcome announcements. Actually, what's happened more this week is shoving them all away into the next session, particularly the great big social care eruption, because there's no way that they are going to come up with any solution to that that will satisfy most people. Uh, and it's going to be politically explosive. So uh, that'll rumble on through the summer. Uh, certainly the whole question of spending and taxing with a uh, you know an autumn, autumn review coming up uh, and huge cuts in prospect for all nearly all public all the public sector uh, and you know tax rises out of thought inevitable so I think the summer will be a time of ferocious debate within the Tory party and Labour must be there to capitalise on it I don't think anyone's going on holiday that's great and we're also going to examine that later in the show thank you ever so much Polly it was lovely to chat to you thank you after the break what lies at the heart of Boris Johnson's premiership we'll be right back Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. 
So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Borough order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at borough.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at borough.com slash ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome back to Politics Weekly. I'm Jessica Elgott. Now, it's been seven months since Dominic Cummings was pushed out of Downing Street, but he just can't seem to let the limelight go. On Tuesday, in an interview with the BBC, Boris Johnson's former special advisor claimed that some of those closest to the PM were planning to get rid of him only days after the Tories won the election. Johnson is still here, though. So 18 months on, plus a pandemic, where are we with the big themes of Boris Johnson's premiership? Well, one of them, his big social care reform plan, has once again been delayed until the autumn. And that announcement came about an hour after Heather Stewart spoke with David Gork, the former Conservative MP for South West Hertfordshire, Jill Rutter, a senior fellow at the Institute for Government, and Ryan Shorthouse, the founder and CEO of the think tank Bright Blue and a former advisor to the Conservatives. Let's first of all go back to last week, uh, to what was seen as a kind of big moment in Boris Johnson's premiership. We were being briefed earlier in the week he was going to sort of set out what was the guiding idea of his administration, this idea of levelling up. Um, Jill, did you watch the speech or catch up on it afterwards? We didn't see a great deal of substance, did we? I did read it and it was a very odd looking speech. I thought what was interesting was, you know, there were clearly a lot of those sort of Boris Johnson rhetorical flourishes, but it was quite hard to work out from the structure of the speech exactly what the big messages were. You had to really sort of delve into it. And the actual sort of nuggets in clear direction were very few and far between. And so you've had this debate afterwards, was the big announcement really 50 million quid for football pitches within 15 minutes of every child? Or was it actually a new offer on devolution? What was notably absent was anything that made this a really concrete subject and said, actually, this is what we're going to do. This is what we think levelling up means. And these are the things that you as someone are going to see is different. So uh, I thought for a big build-up speech, actually, it was a really damp squib and they would have frankly done better to wait till they had more substance and meat in the autumn if that was all they had to offer. Ryan, is it just an ambiguous phrase, this, that I was a Conservative MP, Laura Farris, who went on the, went on the telly at the same time as Johnson's speech and said it, was, you know, it could mean anything to anyone, effectively. Is, is that right? Or is, is there a way of defining levelling up and making it mean something and setting it out in policy terms? At the moment, yes, it is very woolly. And I thought the speech was gibberish, really. But what I would say could be possibly unique is two things. The first is thinking about how we might raise up places rather than just individual people. So there's a lot of talk now about actually how can we make those towns, those so-called left-behind towns, desirable for talented people so they can lead the institutions, the businesses, which can really reju reju rejuvenate those areas. That's an interesting thing. And, and I think 
you know, Boris and the Conservative government could focus on that a little bit more. And the second thing, I think, and there's lots of evidence on this emerging, is around um, the value of social infrastructure, of civic activity and pride. I think those could be two unique areas. But at the moment, as I said, the speech seemed to indicate actually levelling up was was everything. And it does need to be focused to, to make it feel, OK, this is where what's distinctive about this government. And David, there was a sense in the speech, I, I'm sure you have better things to do than to have been watching it, but that there was a sense that he was a little bit concerned, the Prime Minister, about perhaps voters in seats like yours. We had that Chesham and Amersham by-election by loss, didn't we, recently, that quite surprised the Conservatives, I think. Do you think they're worried that the, that the sort of strident rhetoric that they've used on levelling up when they go to Hartlepool or seats like that and they say, we're going to build lots of lovely things and we're going to restore your town and your, your local pride, does that not go over terribly well in traditional conservative seats in the in the sort of south or the commuter belt this i think demonstrates the difficulty they've got you know have you got a a a program here is there really a plan what's the substance you know if it involves spending money then where are you going to get that money from um are we trying to uh, make perhaps the, the the prosperous southeast less attractive in the end you've got to make some decisions and uh, what I thought was very evident from, from the Prime Minister's speech is that he hasn't really made any big decisions about levelling up. Jill, there was a bit of a hint of, of something on devolution, wasn't there? In fact, there was a, a period where I, I kept thinking he was building up to something. I was sort of waiting for the, you know, as a news journalist, you're sort of, what, you know, what's the, what's the story? What's the line? And it, it, did, it felt as if he was making an argument that, you know, he talks about local leadership and how important that was and, you know, how important Andy Street is in the West Midlands and so on. And he talked about devolving more power to counties, didn't he? I mean, do, do you think devolution, more devolution has to be part of any sort of agenda to level up? Well, he could have made this quite a big, strong theme that actually he was going to empower local leaders to and give them the resources they needed to make decisions to uh, to level up. But it seemed to still be stuck a bit in the sort of paradigm that uh, that the government has always had of and you know, and not just this government, previous governments that they're prepared to devolve, but only they sort of devolve if you come to central government with your program and central government approves it and then will give you the powers and some of the resources to go ahead on that basis. What did seem to be interesting is that one of the reservations that Conservatives have obviously had about the devolution agenda to the big cities is they've given sort of a new generation of Labour politicians, or you might say recycled Labour politicians, a new platform uh, on the national stage, whether it's Andy Burnham, Sadiq Khan, um, Steve Rotherham. I mean, that's why you look at Andy Street and Ben Houchen as the sort of conservative breakthroughs in becoming um, metro mayors. And what you did see then is saying, well, actually, can we create some similar figures? I think we've been promised a devolution white paper for quite some time that's also slightly got uh, uh, got lost in the pile-up tray. Talking of difficult decisions, maybe we should move on to social care, which is another thing the Prime Minister seems to be keen to resolve. It's two years now since he arrived in Downing Street and he made that promise. He said he had a plan to fix social care system. We haven't, of course, seen that plan. Admittedly, there's been a, a, a pandemic to handle. But um, Ryan, it feels like we're closing in on a solution on this, but it, it will mean some difficult decisions, won't it? And it will mean some families, some taxpayers paying more. 
I mean, what is now being touted is this idea of uh, additional national insurance to pay for additional social care, which kind of mirrors what Gordon Brown did when he talked about an extra 1% for the NHS all those years ago. You know, I do think we need to get some money from somewhere and, and... you know, taxing might be a good idea. I do think there are other ways that you might tax, for example, on inheritance. Uh, and this was tried through the 2017 Tory election manifesto uh, infamously. And, you know, people think that that was largely to blame for Theresa May's um, uh, loss of the Tory majority. I think taxing in that way from the property, the inheritance, which, you know, now in the UK, the value of that is huge, would be better and fairer than actually through national insurance, where you're taxing a lot of younger workers. So there are problems, I think, with putting it on national insurance. But I think that the politics of it is that younger taxpayers uh, who have also suffered quite a lot from the pandemic in terms of economically will be paying for social care, which a lot of people who are actually benefiting from that injection of funding won't be paying for. David, you were a Treasury Minister. What, what, what would you be advising the Prime Minister to do? He obviously sat around the table, didn't he, with Sajid Javid and Rishi Sunak last week to sort of bash out a solution to this, although they seem to have just succeeded in pinging each other for COVID. But um, what, <laughs> what would you be recommending? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a complete con. I mean, I don't, I, when I was the Minister for Tax, I didn't really like national insurance contributions because of the inherent dishonesty about it. I mean, the, the both employers and employees, uh, national insurance contributions, they are taxes on uh, employees. It means that you know, people take less home in pay than they otherwise would. In many respects, it's just like income tax, except it's got a different base. It's collected in a different way. And people don't think it's like income tax. So governments of all colours tend to find it an easier way, a politically easier way to raise revenue. But there are lots of distortions, as Ryan says. So 1p on, on income tax is, would be a better, a better tax policy, but it would probably be worse politics. Um, uh, let's move on to another area Boris Johnson often talks about when he's you know, discussing the sort of themes of his premiership or his, his administration, which is the climate crisis. Um, the ambitious goal towards achieving net zero it was Theresa May who legislated for that, of course. Um, Ryan, he has the COP26 summit coming up, doesn't he, in the autumn. Um, it's a, it, That's going to be a huge moment, isn't it? And I think he's hoping that achieving a successful deal there, you know, will, will sort of change the face of his premiership a bit, but also will show that Britain can still play a role post-Brexit, you know, sort of globally and outward looking and can still kind of achieve things as an, an internationalist country. Yeah, I mean, I think beyond COVID, the sort of two big uh, kind of issues that the Prime Minister is trying to be associated with is levelling up and the green agenda. Um And, uh, you know, I think politically there's a feeling that the green agenda could reach out to those more younger centrist voters. Um, There is, you know, a lot of energy and rhetoric behind the green agenda. Uh, And I don't yet think the government, despite the kind of soaring rhetoric, haven't quite got the policies right to help people, particularly those on low and middle incomes. So if we are going to meet net zero emissions, we're going to have to have much stronger policies. Jill, does that feel right? We've not got the policies really to to, to back up the, the overall aim? You need to give policy certainty because the way of putting up the costs on this is if um, people think you're going to chop and change policies. And the Green Homes Grant is really, really interesting 
Greenhomes grant, as Ryan said, a successor to the ill-fated Green Deal, was designed to get households to take up energy efficiency measures, but the Treasury wanted it to be a green recovery measure. So they wanted the money out of the door very quickly, but you had to do really complicated measures very quickly. And they didn't look and say, well, actually, where are the suppliers for these measures? You need to grow the supply side as well if you're going to do these things successfully. And you need sort of long-term plans. These aren't short-term fixes. This is about a massive transformation of the economy. And ministers don't look as though they're sort of quite grasped the dimensions of the implications of their commitment to net zero yet. And they need to do that pretty quickly. David, I wanted to ask you before we come to a close, we've looked at quite a few different aspects of Boris Johnson's political project, if that's what it is. Um, I wonder how you think Conservatives or Conservative voters in constituencies like the one you used to represent will be thinking about this government. It's been the COVID government, hasn't it? Now Boris Johnson's trying to redefine it in some other ways, but he's also doing things like cutting the aid budget, which has you know, caused a, quite a big revolt in your party. I, I wonder what you think voters like yours will be thinking when they look at Boris Johnson's performance. I think uh, we have to remember that the, the, the biggest asset that Boris Johnson had uh, in 2019 was Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, and that's obviously no longer the case. And I think there are a lot of, um, could be described as a sort of more moderate liberal conservative voters who, who stuck with uh, the Conservatives in 2019, um, not out of any great enthusiasm for Boris Johnson. They did prefer him to Jeremy Corbyn, but they weren't necessarily um, enormous admirers of, of of him. And I don't think there's anything that has happened subsequently that is likely to have warmed them towards the Prime Minister. Uh, and as we sh- saw in the Chesham and Amersham by-election, you know, if there is a choice, if there is an opportunity to go elsewhere, if, if these voters feel that it is safe uh, to vote for somebody other than the Conservatives, quite a few of them will do that. Now, that's probably not going to be enough um, to, 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 to really cause panic for the Conservatives. But I think there is a, a, a problem here. You know, you look around the cabinet table, there isn't somebody who's pursuing a really in an interesting, innovative policy prospectus. Keir Starmer seems to be missing a trick, which is there's not enough excitement and uh, thought being put into a policy prospectus. It feels like he's playing safe. But because the government is tired, I do think there is an opportunity for Keir Starmer and the Labour Party. You know, I, I think about the, the Cameron and the Conservatives before 2010. They had loads of policy reviews covering areas which were not traditionally associated with the Conservative Party. Quality of life, there was a review on that. It, it felt that there was a lot of energy and momentum and, and fresh ideas around it. And it just feels that Keir Starmer hasn't done that and therefore isn't doing as well as he could be because like I say that's what I feel about this government it's tired and Covid is actually helping it I think we've concluded that we all very much need the the long summer recess (laughs) on on both sides of the uh, House of Commons Um, thank you all very much Um, David Gork, Jill Rutter and Ryan Shorthouse thank you thank you thanks And that's all from us this week. Make sure to listen to Friday's episode of Politics Weekly Extra as Joni Greaves speaks to Sam Levin about the push by state Republicans to pass multiple anti-trans bills into law and what Biden can do to stop them at a federal level. 
But for now, I want to thank our guests, Heather Stewart, Polly Toynbee, Ryan Shorthouse, Jill Rutter and David Gork. The producer is Yolene Gafan and I'm Jessica Elgott. Please look after yourselves and thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the super light collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.